You're listening to Investigation Insiders by Integris Intelligence. Hello again, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Investigation Insiders. This is Farhad. I hope you're all well and safe. Um, another uh, Super Bowl just passed uh, this past weekend, and what, what a game it was. Congratulations to the Kansas City Chiefs uh, on another great championship. Unfortunately, um, afterwards, there was uh, some issues uh, at the celebration. Hopefully, everyone is recovering and doing okay from that. Um, so, uh, as, as I, I sound like a broken record, but we have uh, just a fantastic guest today, uh, Michael Barish uh, from Barish McGarry. How are you, Michael? I'm good, and thanks for having me, Farhad. Absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm really excited about this episode. Uh, my, Michael and I actually uh, know each other through, uh, originally through the um, FBI Citizens Academy here in New York, and then uh, we've been able to connect through other members of our staff. So, <clears throat> Mike, could you please tell our, I mean, a lot of folks are going to know you through the work that you do, but for those that don't, can you provide a little bit of an overview of your background? Sure. Well, I've had several different uh, careers within the law. Uh, I was a proud uh, advocate for injured New York City firefighters and cops uh, whenever they got injured in the line of duty. And I did that for years. And then 9-11 happened. And frankly, that not only changed the lives of so many hundreds of thousands of people, which is now called the 9-11 community, but it changed my career as well. Um, at the beginning, I represented people who died on that day. But then we kept hearing all these firefighters in particular coughing. And uh, that cough was actually called the World Trade Center cough by the uh, FDNY. And I needed to protect my guys in case the cough didn't go away or in case it became disabling. And sure enough, you know, listen, I could be a lawyer and you might probably be a very good investigator if you had asthma, but you lose your career if you're a firefighter. And that, that was what was happening, not just to firefighters, but to police officers, to construction workers. This cough was getting worse and worse. And in fact, it was at first it was called asthma, then reactive airways disease. But anyway, I advocated uh, to change the original victim compensation fund. It was by pure luck. I ran into Ken Feinberg, who had just been named special master by President Bush. And I explained to him that the original rules prohibited uh, responders from applying to the victim fund because the, the original rules said you had to go see a doctor within 72 hours to be eligible. Well, no first responder was going to get off the pile to go to a doctor to document a cough if there was a chance that people were still alive, that people could be found, that deceased people's remains could be found, which was so important for the families. Well, Mr. Feinberg did a wonderful thing. He changed the rules. And he allowed people who didn't go to a doctor initially, who had what we call latent injuries, to apply. So in the first victim fund, I represented over a thousand, mostly responders. And then I advocated for the next five, six years for them to reopen the victim fund because it originally closed at the end of 2020, 2003, I'm sorry. 
And then, I mean, I'm giving you a Reader's Digest version of my bio, but um, we we were lucky and got Congress, which can't usually agree on anything, uh, to reopen the Victim Compensation Fund and created the World Trade Center Health Program. It was named after my client, Jimmy Zedroga, which we can get into later. Uh, Detective Zedroga died of pulmonary fibrosis, and when they did his autopsy, they found ground glass and other uh, carcinogens in his lungs. And so this was created for five years, and then I advocated to have it extended again. And finally, in 2019, Congress and then President Bush, uh, President Trump signed it, uh, into law, and now it's permanently extended, both programs. So now I just represent victims of 9-11 who are getting these latent injuries and sadly dying from these 69 cancers that have been linked to the World Trade Center toxins. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's it's interesting, and we're, we're obviously going to talk a lot about this. And one of the reasons why I'm particularly excited about hearing from you and hearing you talk is because hopefully we we will get to some more people that may not realize that um, they are uh, also victims and get help uh, that they and their family may or may not need. So, um, oh, so maybe, many people. I'm glad you say that. For because yeah. so many people still don't realize they're eligible. Yeah, yeah, and, and I'm learning more about that as well. Um, so, you know, maybe we could just start with a few questions to get to know you, right? So, where did you grow up, and how did you become an attorney in the first place? Uh, so, I grew up on the mean streets of Scarsdale, New York, up in Westchester County, about 25 miles north of the Oof. city. Um, yeah, it's a tough neighborhood. If you didn't have a slide rule while you were walking down Scarsdale High School hallway, I mean, it was dangerous. <laughs> uh, by the way, I, I just hope your audience knows that I'm being facetious. Uh, I grew up very privileged. My dad was an insurance broker. I, yeah, I thought, it's funny, I remember my father telling me when I was 16 years old, teaching me how to drive, that he made $50,000 a year. And I thought, wow. We're rich. And I didn't realize we were just, you know, solidly middle class. I did, I thought I had everything I, a kid would ever want. Anyway, I always wanted to go into my dad's insurance business. And uh, yeah, my dad, I graduated college with a degree in history. And my father said, you know, what do you want to do? Be a history teacher? And I said, no, no, dad, I want to go into the insurance business with you. It was the only thing I knew. I didn't know about investment banking or uh, the stock market. I knew nothing about that kind of stuff. None of my, nobody in my family were firefighters or cops, so that wasn't even a, a, a thought. But um, my dad said, you know, Michael, why don't you go to law school first? Get your degree, and then come to work for me in the insurance business. That would help me a lot and separate you from everybody else in the insurance business. So I thought, okay, that's a good idea, and I went to Fordham Law School, which was not only a great school, but I was now living in the city for my first time and I loved it. And admittedly, I was so distracted by all the great things in the city, I wasn't much of a law student. But then again, I had no intention of being a lawyer. I was always gonna go right to my dad's insurance business. So um, my first summer after first year of law school, my dad got, gets me, introduced me to his buddy, Larry, who was a personal injury lawyer. And instead of sending me to the library to research, which I would have hated, and that's what I thought I was in for. He had me go to court with him every day, and I got bit 
by the trial bug. It was so fascinating to me, so interesting. You know, I listen, I was a gopher. I, he'd say, go get me coffee, go get me a newspaper, go up to the Bronx, pick up this witness, make sure the witness knows what I'm going to be asking him or her. So I was a schlepper, but I got to enjoy watching trials. So I actually never went to the insurance business. I graduated from law school and went to work for this guy, Larry. And I just, for the next six years, I just tried dozens and dozens of cases. You know, it started out with just car accident cases, trip and falls, but I learned how to try a case. And then um, I eventually met someone from law school who I hadn't seen in over a decade, Jim McGarry. And Jim was representing New York City firefighters. And I, you know, I asked him, I said, Jim, how's everything? When well, we ran into each other in the uh, subway station at Times Square. And I said, how's everything? And normally when you haven't seen someone in a decade, what do they say? Oh, everything's great. Yeah, I'm fine. I said, Jim, how you doing? He goes, oh, I hate my job. And I said, what? And he said, yeah, I'm working for this big law firm. And I have all these friends of mine who I grew up with who are New York City firefighters. And when they get hurt, they're entitled to sue under the general municipal law. But my law firm wants to charge them by the hour. And they don't have any money. Uh, you know. And I said, well, Jim, I'm a trial attorney, and I only charge people a contingency fee. We should get together. And hence, Barish and McGarry was born representing, at the beginning, injured New York City firefighters. Uh, that's 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 a great story. And, and and by the way, I just I just want to point out two things. One, I think that some of the greatest people and leaders in the world are uh, appreciative ex schleppers. By the way, I, I think there's a lot to be said. <laughs> I think there's a lot to be said about that. And, I'm a and proud ex schlepper. There you go. As am I. Uh, the the second thing is. You know, it's interesting. I, I I did not know about like your dad being in the insurance business and sort of um, that influence on you. Do you do you feel like your knowledge or peripheral knowledge of the insurance industry made you a better attorney uh, in terms of representing people that may have been hurt in different ways? Well, that's an interesting question. I haven't thought about that. I, look, being the son of an insurance broker, I learned a lot about life insurance and property and casualty insurance. Okay. And in fact, I actually, during law school, took my license test to, and I got licensed in both. Um, I think it helped me um, in the fact that I understand insurance issues very well. But right. what really helped me was my dad at the end of the day was a salesman. Yeah. And he grew up as a poor kid in the Bronx. Yeah, he went to school under the GI Bill after his uh, stint working uh, under General Patton in World War II. And what he taught me, this is a great story. He said, when you go to someone's house to sell them life insurance, and life insurance is like this kind of theoretical thing, you're never going to benefit for it. You're buying it for your family. So it's not an easy sell. And he'd say, uh, make sure once they sign the contract, you don't stay for that second cup of coffee. In other words, you right. know what your goal is, you accomplish it, don't give them a chance to change their mind. And if, if you got someone on the phone who's willing to see you, you say to them, well, 
and, and you see that they're on the fence, you let them make the decision when to see you by giving them two choices that right. are both good for you so that you don't care whether they say, yeah, come Tuesday morning or Wednesday after work right. because you, right. you just want to see them, but yep. you're letting them think that they're making the choice to see you. And I thought those two lessons were really valuable and helpful to me because at the end of the day, while I'm really not a salesman, yeah, listen, I'm not ashamed to say I'm always trying to get people to hire me rather than one of my uh, competitors. So I am trying to, quote, sell myself. And I think those skills that I learned from my dad were life lessons that were helpful. And I'd also like to point out, too, and I've mentioned both stories to you so far, meeting Ken Feinberg while on vacation. He was the special master. Remember, I said I told you about yeah. who um, President Bush had just appointed. I met him by accident <laughs> in Jamaica, in the yeah. Caribbean. And it was over Christmas vacation. I met his kids. They said they told me what they did what their father did. And I said, do you want us to introduce you to our dad? He's like, whoa. I mean, that is just pure luck. And then, um, you know, my dad getting me a job with this guy, Larry, who, was, yeah. who, who instead of sending me to the library, had me go to court every day. Again, sure. luck. And yeah. then, you know, I, I mean, I can't tell you how much luck has played into my success. And uh, obviously, you have to take advantage of the luck. But yep. you should always be on the lookout. You never know when you're going to meet someone, which is why I always say to people, always keep in touch with your classmates, your friends, your former neighbors. You never know when that person could be useful or helpful to you and your clients. Yep, uh, absolutely. I, I, run, I, and also running running into Jim McGarry on the subway. Yeah, yeah. Luck. Absolutely. Um no, absolutely. I, I, I think I, obviously you realize you, you, you help make your own luck and uh, by doing certain things that you do. But those, those are all just, again, fantastic stories. Um, so, again, you talked a little bit about what you were doing prior to 9-11, right? Is there like a case or a person during that time frame? Because we're going to draw a line pre and post 9-11, right? Um, Pre 9-11, is there a person or a case that's like really memorable for you that sort of helped shape who you are today? Uh, well, there was, uh, I tried a lot of cases that made the newspapers uh, just because of how unusual they were. I'm not going to say that they shaped who I was. I'd say it was the, the hundreds of cases that I tried. Uh, and by the way, I don't try every case to the end. Though in most cases, settle. Otherwise, yep. you'd never have any cases move in court. But yes. being a trial attorney and and learn and by the way, I got um, I got the shit beaten out of me by my adversaries at the beginning so, um, because I didn't know what I was doing. And right. but I learned every time I tried a case, I say, oh, that was really smart what that guy did because mm -hmm. they don't teach you this in law school. I mean, sure. you really have to learn from the veterans. And it takes getting, you know, but at the beginning, all I was doing was trying to, uh, at maximum. There was an insurance law that required taxi drivers to have $10,000 of insurance. So right. the most I could get for a client was $10,000, which is why my boss assigned me to try all those cases. And yeah. you know, I learned from the insurance company lawyers who were trying cases against me to save the taxi company 
as much of that $10,000 as possible. So learning how to be a trial attorney, learning how to ask questions, that was a great, and by the way, also learning to listen. All too many people know how to ask questions and then they don't listen to the answer from the witness and they're just looking at their pieces of paper. I mean, you're doing it now. You're listening to me. You're not just reading from questions you may or may not have written ahead of time. Uh, And if you don't listen, you can't learn and then you can't ask that follow-up question that the jury wants to hear. So I think that was the greatest lesson I learned. But if I had to pick one trial in particular that kind of put me on the map, it was one that almost went all the way to the Supreme Court. Uh, I represented a railroad worker um, and he was cleaning uh, an area where drug users were known to be all the time. And he, he stuck himself with a hypodermic needle. And this was at the height, this was in the 80s when you know AIDS was the scourge and it was a death sentence for most people. So this guy panicked, um, he had terrible PTSD, not when fortunately he, he turned out to be fine and he went on to live a long life and a happy life. Um, but at the time he freaked out. So we sued the railroad and you know for not getting these drug users out of the station where people were coming by and these guys are injecting or they were sleeping over at night and just you know drugging out and we forced the railroad to clean up the waiting station which was a good thing for the public but yeah. the railroad didn't like the verdict and you know i think i got the guy $250,000 for his fear of uh aids and his fear and he had it documented he went to psychiatrists uh, he really had panic attacks. He never had any physical problems, but he had to be tested for years. And um, not only did it clean up the area, but what, what made this really special was the railroad appealed it. They lost on appeal, and it went all the way to the Supreme Court, which I was a little happy and said at the same time, they denied certiorari, which means that they didn't need to hear the case. They said the appellate courts were right um, okay. where I had argued the case. And, um, you know, it was fun to having almost been argued a case in the Supreme Court, but, but winning the case in the Supreme Court. So that got me a lot of notoriety. Hmm. You know, I, you know, uh, it, it's it's interesting um, about like the work that you do. And, and you know, as you're talking, it really, um, you know, it, some of the cases I imagine are things that are just like anything else in the world, uh, simpler to prove and and, and get um, assistance with. But some of the stuff that you're working on, I mean, to prove, you know, actual damages and all that sort of stuff. I mean, it it has to get pretty it has to get pretty complicated. And and the one, you know, what you're describing here, again, it, it it's complicated. I mean, you know, th- to prove kind of the damages that you describe. So. Interesting case. Well, you know, it's interesting that, yeah, Farhad, that case, because it dealt with post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, made me so much more appreciative of what the 9-11 community has gone through. Because a lot of people think um, PTSD is fake or it's, you know, it's exaggerating your injuries. Oh, come on, get over it. Well, it's not so easy. And it made me much more empathetic to people who today I I speak to every day, who continue to suffer the effects of 9-11. 
And I mean, I can't imagine, listen, I'm, my office is just two blocks from ground zero. I'm one of those guys you see on the news running away as the enveloped in the smoke, which I was. But yeah. these guys who were like you, like the firefighters, the cops, and later the construction workers and the sanitation workers, the EMTs, they were running towards the, um, the devastation. I can't even imagine, uh, although I've heard it graphically, what they observed, the body parts, the, the yeah. lives that were just crushed. And they still today have PTSD. So yeah. I think that case made me very empathetic to people who, and, and by the way, you know what's a trigger? Every 9-11, when, you know, when all the politicians come out and say, we will never forget today, and they have the solemn ceremonies. Well, what do you think that does to responders who are hearing that again and seeing the news clips every day? How do you think they feel when they get that diagnosis of prostate cancer, breast cancer, bladder cancer? I mean, there are 69 cancers that have been linked. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's just like ripping a scab off for these guys. And I think that one case that I tried has made me a much better person, not just a lawyer, when I have to talk to these people who are suffering these life-threatening illnesses. Sure. You know, I got to tell you something interesting about you. Um, like, again, you're a fast-paced guy. I mean, you're, you're moving in a lot of directions. Obviously, you're talking to tons of people, reviewing tons of documents. But... One thing that that I have really noticed about you is even in in the chaos that's going on around you, it's really interesting how you connect the dots between uh, certain things. I just want to mention that before we we move on. How like it, again, you could be in the middle of eight things and you'll hear that one thing and immediately make a connection. That's that's really interesting and and really shows why you are uh, an excellent attorney. Um, so well, and I thought I thought today was just going to be a podcast. I didn't realize it was going to be a psychiatric session. This is wonderful, yeah. doctor. Well, thank you, you know, for the analysis, and I appreciate I, the compliment. You got it, man. Well, that, I try. You know <laughs> I, mean? like, I try to get our uh, guests to feel as comfortable as possible. So um, the uh, so you you alluded to it. Um, can you talk about what you were doing on 9-11 and just sort of a first transmission on what was going on with you that day. Sure. So as I said, I'm, I'm, my office is at 11 Park Place. I had a great view of the World Trade Center. And while I didn't see the first plane that hit the towers, uh, I certainly felt it. I mean, my building shook. And um, and then you know, I, I stared and it. Like, it, even though it was two blocks away, you could see the fire getting bigger and bigger, and the the, the rumors were because I went down to the street to see if I could get a better view. The rumors were that uh, it was a small plane, as everybody knows. Um, and then you know, I'm staring and watching, and then I, and I start seeing people jumping. And it's like, why are these people? It was just, it was like a deer in headlight. I was, uh, I couldn't believe it. So I went running back up to my office. I'm now standing with three other people at the corner office watching dozens of people leap. I, you, if, I'm sure you've seen it on the TV. It's just horrifying. And my wife calls me and says, get out of there. I'm watching it on the Today Show. I said, Candy, they're not going to attack 11 Park Place. And as I'm saying that, the second tower gets hit. I see the plane hit the second tower. Wow. and. Now I'm just, again, 
I'm in a trance almost. We all were. And when the first building finally at 9.30 started to collapse, that's when I realized, holy cow, this building could fall on ours. So we went running down the stairs. By the time we reached our lobby, you know, 18 floors lower, our because it was such a gorgeous day, our, our doors were open. The smoke is pouring into our lobby. So I went running left to Murray Street and then uptown, um, you know, covered in dust like so many other people. Um, that was my memory of 9-11. Um, and then walking all the way uptown. I lived on 77th Street at the time. I had to walk uptown. Um, it was a day, obviously, you'll never forget. Sure. Yeah. No, I mean, again, everybody has their own little story with, with that day. And um, so I guess that that ultimately that day leads to the the work that you were doing, you know, since then and obviously today. And so I thought it'd be interesting. I mean, obviously, uh, we, we talked about this uh, to talk about um, the Victims Compensation Fund. Um, and so can you talk a little bit about what it is and what kind of help eligible people receive? Sure. So for your listeners, I'm sure everybody remembers the famous words of uh, Christine Todd Whitman, who was the head of the EPA, when she said, the air is safe to breathe. So we believed her. You know, the EPA would never lie to us. And so we returned to our homes in lower Manhattan. We returned to our offices. We returned to our schools. And the first responders kept digging without proper respiratory protection. And now it wasn't just first responders. There were tens of thousands of volunteers. There were um, construction workers who were considered also responders. But even though they may not be first responders, but they had to remove the debris, help find body parts. Um, all these people are considered part of the 9-11 community. And Congress did, let's give Congress the credit. I mean, after the EPA screwed up, because they wanted to reopen Wall Street. I think that was their motivation, which they did a week later. Well, Congress did the right thing 10 years later. In 2011, uh, President Obama signed the first James Ed Roga Health and Compensation Act, and um, that created the World Trade Center Health Program and the Victim Compensation Fund. And for HUD, I don't want to forget, let's not forget talking about the health program, because that's just as important, that free health care to anyone yep who gets um, sick, anyone, they've now linked 69 cancers to the toxins. So it's really important that people sign up. But how do you sign up? Well, it gets harder and harder every year that goes by, which is how I've come back into contact with you and your wonderful organization, um, because you're now helping me at Integros get the proof that the people need to prove that they were there. Now, for the firefighters and cops, it's relatively easy because the fire FDNY kept very good track of all their guys who went down to the World Trade Center area. But many police officers back in the day were never down at ground zero. And certainly there were firefighters and cops who came in from all over the country. I represent people from every single state, volunteers guys from FEMA, task and rescue companies. So how do they prove that they came? How do the firefighters from West Hampton Beach, from Maranac, New York, 
from Jersey City, not just firefighters, cops, all those responders. There were tens of thousands of them that you know came to help, and they need to prove that they were there. Well, you can either prove it with official documentation, but many like many uh, fire companies and police companies just said, "Hey guys, go, go go down there," or if it's your day off, go down there. So there are no official records. So how else can you prove it? Well, you can prove it with affidavits from other people who saw you there. But as every day goes by, more and more of those people are passing away. I mean, just my law firm, and now my firm represents almost 40,000 people now, and about half of them are now downtown office workers, downtown residents, and former students and teachers. Well, the students and teachers, they have a relatively easier task to prove they were there because of school transcripts, and most schools are still in existence. But for many of the 300,000 office workers, their companies have long since closed down. I mean, Bear Stearns doesn't exist anymore. Um, so many other financial institutions don't exist anymore. And if you worked at small companies, small law firms, they've gone out of business, their bosses may have died. It's difficult to prove their presence. Um, so we use people like Integris, investigators, and thankfully, I have a robust um, data system. So if someone tells me they worked for a small company, I may represent someone at that company who could then sign an affidavit for them. And the government does not want to hurt these people, but they do need to exercise diligence to make sure that there's no fraud. So, yeah. and we encourage this due diligence. But every year that goes by, it's going to get harder and harder, which is why I'm telling people who are currently healthy, don't wait. Don't wait until you get that horrible diagnosis, sir or ma'am, you have cancer. That's not when you want to start reaching out to those former coworkers from 22, 23 years ago. You should get those affidavits now and then warehouse them. Register with the Victim Compensation Fund, and if you start to get sick, then get certified by the health program, which will pick up all the co-pays and deductibles that you have, which your regular insurance doesn't pay for. But I just, I beseech everyone, protect yourselves, protect your families. This is not adversarial. The government wants to help you, but you need to prove you were there. So get that proof now. Sure. So what what kind of like t tell uh, can you talk a little bit? You, you mentioned the health fund, obviously the VCF. So what kind of so you mentioned obviously payments in terms of health insurance. What what other kind of benefits do, do people receive that, uh, again, w will prove to be useful uh, if they happen to get sick or, you know, whatever. I'm glad you asked that question, because and the first thing I want people to know is. Don't feel guilty about making a claim for yourself or your family. You're not taking away from anyone else. You're not taking away from the firefighters and the cops who you, who you might think deserve it more than you do. Um, I mean, you, if you were an office worker, a former student, a teacher, a downtown resident, you were exposed to the same toxins. And not surprisingly, we, and I mean me too, because I now have prostate cancer and skin cancer, we were exposed to the same toxins. We're coming down with the exact same cancers. We're dying from those cancers. So 
There's the government has fully funded both the health program and the victim compensation fund. And to, to answer your question for Hyde, which is so important, they're giving compensation to make up to, to, to reimburse you for your pain and suffering up to $250,000 for almost every cancer, um, $20,000 for small respiratory illnesses. But that you should still do it, not for the $20,000, but you do it so that you now have proven to the government that you're eligible. They've verified with your witnesses that you were there. And therefore, God forbid you get cancer in 30 years. Right. It's not a question. You don't have to prove it again. So yeah. they're giving compensation for that. They're also giving compensation for lost income. So if your cancer prevents you from working, if your severe respiratory illness makes you lose your career, they'll give you what you would have made up till age 65 in most cases, minus whatever you got from a pension or social security disability. So it's real money. It's money that's going to help a widow keep her home. I mean, I can't tell you how, I, look, you know, I, it's not an easy thing that I do representing people who are dying every day, but it is incredibly gratifying because I see how comforting it is to someone with a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer, knowing that his wife won't have to lose her home, that the kids can go to college. The yeah. government has done a great thing, just sadly, while over 10%, I'm sorry, well over 90% now of the responders have enrolled in these programs, less than 10% of the civilians have done so. And that's my big challenge is getting the word out there. And that's why I so appreciate you giving me a few minutes today, Borad, to help get the word out there to people. There's, uh, there are benefits available. And as our hero, John Stewart said, because without John, we never would have gotten this bill permanently extended. As he tells people, access what you are entitled to. Take care of yourselves. Take care of your families. Sure. Uh, I, I think that I think helping people to understand that you're not actually taking away from someone else to get. And, you know, again, doing this while you don't need it just in case you need it in the future. I, I think that's just so important. Um, and so, yeah. And for that, I'll tell you, I'll share with you another thing that you don't need. And this is going to surprise yeah. you hearing me say this. You don't yeah. need an attorney. Yeah. Some people okay. feel like they can do it on themselves by themselves. Look, other people don't want to deal with the tons of paperwork and yeah. they feel that um, it's just it's worth the 10 percent legal fee that Congress um, they created a ceiling of the uh, so attorneys can't charge more than 10 percent of what they get. And I can right. tell you, most attorneys I know don't want to do this work for, you know, if you get twenty thousand dollars for someone proving that they were there, you get a two thousand dollar fee for a lot of lawyers. They feel it's not worth it. I don't agree, right. but maybe that's because I'm in the 9-11 community. And I'm just so, I take it so personally. I think everyone deserves what they can get. Sure, sure. Um, so uh, there was uh, recently something called the 9-11 Notice Act, right? What, can you talk about that? Mm -hmm. Sure. So, um, you know, I, I mentioned the statistics of just less than 10% of the non-responders know that they're eligible. And I do a lot of outreach trying to tell people, but uh, the governor finally agreed. And the New York State Legislature unanimously passed this bill last summer. The governor signed it on September 11th. It will require every former employer, if they're still in existence, to notify their former employees if they were downtown below Houston Street um, for the health program, about the health program and below Canal Street 
for the victim compensation line to notify their former employees that they're eligible and that they they that the employer can help them prove that they were there that they were working at that company so it's a wonderful bill and i'm very excited it's going to go into effect this june and i'm hopeful that it will bring tens of thousands of more non-responders into the health program so that they can get certified with their illnesses and get compensated for their damages it's not a perfect bill of course because um you know, a lot of companies are no longer in existence. A lot of their employees have moved away and maybe they can't be reached. But let's not let perfect get in the way of something that is really very, very good. Yeah, no, I, I think that's uh, that's that's fantastic. And, you know, since meeting you, I realized how many people don't even realize that they're eligible uh, for benefits. Right. Can you right, just that's right. talk a little bit about who is eligible? Because I, I I really don't think people understand the threshold, and it's not as I think as as extreme as most people might think. Right. So you need to prove that you were exposed to the toxic dust either in Lower Manhattan between September 11, 2001, and May 30th of 2002. You need not have been one of the people caught in the dust cloud on 9/11 because the government acknowledges that people came back to Lower Manhattan when they when the EPA said the air was safe. Those buildings were on fire for HOD for 99 days. There was smoke billowing everywhere. You'd walk out of the subway and it would just hit you in the face. And then once the fires stopped, um, the uh, it took another seven months to complete the cleanup. And that's why they drew the line at May 30th. So if you can prove that you were either caught in the dust cloud on 9-11 or spent four hours in lower Manhattan between September 11th and um, September 14th, that's when President Bush came to visit. So if you, and that's mostly going to be the first responders, of course, and the downtown residents who stayed, uh, or 24 hours altogether in the month of September, which again, all the stockbrokers, all the people like me who came back to work, that would be almost everybody. Or 80 hours altogether between 9-11 and May 30th of 2002, which may be responders who came, um, FEMA people came in October, November, December. They were there for more than 80 hours. They're all eligible for the health program and the compensation. And the uh, the area uh, that also encompasses the Fresh Kill landfill in Staten Island and parts of Western Brooklyn. Those people get uh, are eligible for the health program. Yeah. I mean, and by I, the way, yeah. also I should add the Pentagon, yeah. the people of the responders at the Pentagon and at Shanksville, yeah. they are also eligible for both programs. And, and so, uh, you know what, I, I was actually just going to bring that up. So you're uh, you're working with people not just here in New York, but outside it, that may have been at the Pentagon or in Shanksville as well, right? Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, as I said, I represent people in every state who came to all three crash locations. Yeah. Um, so it's it's crazy how many, I mean, it's thousands and thousands of people. And we're just really touching the surface. I know there are hundreds of thousands of people who don't yet realize that they are eligible or they fear that it's only for they think it's only for firefighters and cops or they feel guilty about taking away from firefighter cops uh, or they don't connect the dots they might think oh my mother had breast cancer 
my breast cancer couldn't be caused by my working yeah. downtown. Well, there's a presumption linking all these cancers. You don't have to prove anything other than the fact that you were in the exposure zone and that you then got cancer. That's it. I, I look and that that's the that's the thing is that I, I think the threshold is a lot less than what people might think. So so if they need help and they decide that they want to speak to an attorney, how, how would they go about? Um, how, can you just talk a little bit about what they would do relative to your firm? Sure. Um, they, I always tell people, go to my website. That's the easiest thing. Um, 911victims.com. That's victims with an S. Um, and there's a lot of information and you can, there's a chat feature. There's also a phone number listed. So you can call us, but the easiest thing to do is just fill out the um, chat and we'll call you. Um, and if, we'll see if we can help you prove you were there. Um, find out what you need to uh, apply to both programs. And we'll register you. And hopefully, if you're healthy, that'll be the last we ever hear from you. Sure. And if you're not, or if you ever get sick, at least this way, you've got your ducks lined up, you've got your proof warehouse, and um, you know you're going to be able to take care of yourself. So I think that's what they should do. Um, again, I say you don't have to have an attorney. You can go right to the CDC website or the Victim Compensation website, register yourselves. Don't not register. Yeah, no, I, I I think that's sound advice. Um, and so, so what do you like the most about what you do every day? Well, at this point, it, 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 for a long time, it's just been the, the satisfaction of helping people. I know that sounds so corny. Um, I mean, I'm 68 years old. A lot of my friends are now retiring, and I have no interest in ever stopping. To do what I do. I am so grateful. It's such a good feeling. And I think that's the way a lot of people in my firm feel. Now, a lot of people in my firm are the children of uh, deceased responders who feel like this is their calling. So for them, it's really personal. For me, it's mm -hmm. personal because I'm now a victim myself. But it, it's such an, um, an incredible feeling to know that, you know, what, I used to just represent, you know, people in car accidents who got injured one at a time. And yeah, well, that felt good. I mean, it's now I'm helping hundreds of people every week, new people signing up for the Victim Fund and the health program, getting them that health uh, care that they need and that they deserve all over the country. By the way, this health program is available in all 50 states and Puerto Rico. So it's a wonderful feeling to know that, I'm, that I've turned my law degree into something that really is helping. Sure. No, that that's fantastic. Um, so we talked earlier about pre 9/11, but post 9/11. Again, I'm sure that every case, every victim, everyone that you work with has great significance. But uh, is there any um, is there any case or victim that is particularly memorable for you that that you've worked with? Yeah, well, I'd have to say uh, NYPD Detective Jimmy Zedroga. Um, so Jimmy was 34 years old when he died in 2006 of pulmonary fibrosis. And I was working at that point. With, I was, of course, I helped Jimmy get an award from the first victim compensation fund because they didn't really realize the ramifications of his pulmonary illness at that time. But he, the, the victim fund closed at the end of 2023. And we were arguing, well, people are continuing to get sick. 
but Congress had already closed it down. And a lot of uh, politicians outside of New York were saying, oh, New York's just asking for another handout. Haven't, haven't we given them enough? And Jimmy finally died. Um, the family had the courage to ask for a, an autopsy. And as I had said earlier, the, that autopsy revealed ground glass, asbestos, chromium, lead, benzene in his lung tissue. And if he had it, we realized in his lung tissue, so did everybody else, the school children, the office workers, the other responders. So that was the evidence we needed. Now, when he died after the autopsy, Mayor Bloomberg's chief medical officer looked at the uh, the report and said, ah, I see some things in it which shows me that he was uh, snorting Oxycontin. So he probably died that way. And the mayor actually accused him of being a drug user. And wow. the family was besides themselves. And I was furious. And I had thousands of pages of medical records. I demanded a meeting with the mayor. Um, we, I took Joe Zadroga, who sadly just passed away a few weeks ago. Um, Joe Zadroga was Jimmy's father. And Joe and I went to see Mayor Bloomberg. And I brought with me the thousands of pages. I, I didn't slam them, but I placed them on Mayor Bloomberg's desk. And I said, I'm happy to spend all day long with you going through all these records. But I think if you just take a look at this, and I showed him some of the key pages, I said, it shows he had ground glass in his lungs. He was prescribed the Oxycontin because he was in so much agony. This was not someone abusing drugs. This was someone who suffocated to death. Right. And the mayor apologized. And I said, Mayor, that's very nice that you apologize to Mr. Zadroga and his family. I am asking you to make a public apology and an acknowledgement. You know, they were afraid that this was going to open up a can of worms for the city of New York uh, that would have to pay all these people. And the mayor, to his credit, that later that day, publicly apologized. The press said they had never seen him apologize before. And nice. that gave a, his Jimmy did not die in vain. His autopsy and the fight with the mayor and the mayor's apology was the evidence that NIOSH later used to link all these cancers. And it's an ever-growing list. We're now trying to get studies done that'll show that many autoimmune illnesses were caused by exposure to the World Trade Center toxins. So it's an ongoing battle, but you know, it's all directed by science now. But to answer your question, that probably was the single biggest uh, case that I ever handled, the Jimmy Zadroga case. Well, the, I mean, I, again, I, I uh, was following his father passing away recently and uh, obviously, knew about the case. So uh, I appreciate you sort of talking about that a little bit more. And, uh, you know, uh, kudos to Mayor Bloomberg for being a stand-up guy and, and actually apologizing. Yeah. I, I get the feeling you weren't letting up on, until he did it. I'm, ju- I'm just saying. <laughs> well, you know, it's easy to, lie, to not lay up, not let, not let up, I'm sorry. When you uh-huh. have the facts, when you yeah. have the emotion, when you have the right cause, and God, this was the right cause. Yeah, no, it is. Everything that you guys are doing every day is the right cause. So I, I really uh, appreciate you, you coming on the show. I really 
again, thank you for the work that you and your colleagues are doing every day. I mean, you know, this is obviously for anyone that lived through it, um, probably the most significant day of our lives. And uh, for mm -hmm. you guys to bring comfort and a little bit of assistance to people that, you know, need the help is, is just amazing work. I mean, you guys are really heroes. So um, thank you for that. Um, I guess before we wrap it thank up. Thank you. I, and thank you. Oh, I just want to say thank you for everything you do uh, at Integros to help us help our clients. I couldn't do what I do alone. And I, I'll just close by saying it is such a privilege to represent the 9-11 community. Well, that's amazing. I think that's a great way to end the show. Um, thank you for joining us. Thank you to everyone listening. We're going to put uh, Michael's uh, contact information uh, and, and company information in the description of the podcast. If you need to get a hold of them, obviously, you could reach out directly or reach out to us and we'll get you connected. And until um, next time, thank you so much, Michael. My pleasure. Don't forget to follow us. We are on LinkedIn and Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube.